This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then use it as an excuse to argue about shit. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are talking about The Defiled's 2013 album, Daggers. Mm. This was uh, my pick from last week, and I said at the time that they are, The Defiled are, in my opinion, I think, like the best, the most exciting new metal band of the last few years, you know, of recent years, certainly the most exciting band that I've heard in a long time, to be honest. So I'm very much looking forward to this one. Yeah, and this was a band that I didn't know anything about going into this episode, which is actually, um, that's the second time this has happened now, which is <laughs> I good. Sense a because, theme. <laughs> which is good because I like discovering uh, new stuff, and I think it's a good balance for uh, what I would guess would be my trend on the show, which will be revisiting <laughs> a lot of old stuff. Uh, so. Hey, don't get me wrong. I'm going to be, you know, throwing plenty of, well, I did last time, you know, I threw uh, a 20 odd year old album at you. It was just one that you hadn't heard before. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, um, and we'll talk about this more as the show goes on, but I think you'll, you'll start to see the diversity of uh, your tastes and my tastes as we sort of get into these, but there's a lot of overlap too. And I think this is probably one of the places where it does overlap because I overall really dug this album. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm I'm a little bit surprised, but really glad to hear you say that, actually, because I really wasn't sure whether you'd be into this, knowing that you have a taste for, you know, sort of old school thrash and, you know, Megadeth being your favorite band. I just really wasn't sure if you'd be into this or not. So I'm really well, glad to hear that. My other tastes are like riff heavy 80s metal and even hair metal. So, you know, I like a lot of candy and these guys are not candy. And so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it was... Uh, but there are some things that, that I really sort of sunk my teeth into with them, and we'll certainly talk about them as we go through. Cool. But, um, okay. But yeah. Be- before we get any further, we do have uh, our usual little follow-up section, <laughs> uh, except this isn't about... I don't have anything to say about the last episode that we recorded. However, uh, since we recorded the last one over the last week, it has come to our attention that many of you are using uh, an app called Overcast, to listen to your podcast. I use Overcast myself. It's brilliant. Uh, It's overcast.fm, I think is the URL. It's by Marco Armand. It's brilliant. Um, But it has a a really great feature actually called Voice Boost, which basically is, it's an EQ essentially that really pulls out, you know, the frequencies of the human voice. So that Uh if you are listening to it on headphones in a noisy environment, walking along the street or whatever, you know, you will still hear voices very clearly and it will pull out quiet voices and make them louder that sort of thing it's absolutely great for that however it is makes music sound like shit <laughs> like well, there absolutely you go. terrible so if you are listening to this show using overcast or indeed another podcatcher that might have similar features i don't know um probably best to turn them off because basically we had a couple of people actually over the last week contact us and say you know can you record at a higher bit rate, please? Because the music sounds terrible. And the fact is we actually record at a quite a high bit rate. Most podcasts record at like, well, output anyway, at like 64K mono. Correct. And we, yep. out, we output 128K stereo precisely because we have music. Um, exactly. But if you're using one of these, you know, EQ voice boosting features in a podcatcher, it will just completely ruin the music. So, Especially because we do that work ahead of time. That's the thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I do a lot of, uh, you know, sort of compression work on the track, on our voice tracks, um, you know, bring everything to the fore when I'm editing the show. So, you know, you shouldn't need to run one of those when you're listening to the show. Again, in Overcast, you can set these settings per show. 
so you can listen let's to all. Let's call that. Let's call that the injustice for all setting. <laughs> yeah, that they put it. <laughs> that people can put into Overcast. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, but that's what it does. It basically, you know, it kind of distorts things by smashing them all together. But the, I didn't even know that that app had that setting, and um, that's that's something I will take into other podcasts I do because if if that's something the user can now do on the other side. That can definitely mess with the audio if you're equalizing before you even put it out. Mm, exactly. And I mean, like I say, with Overcast especially, you can do it per show. So you can sure. listen to all your other shows with voice burst turned on, but just have it turned off for the, for this one or any other shows where, you know, music's a feature. So yep. yeah, I, we would advise you to do that. Well, that is awesome. And, and uh, Aaron Abernathy was one of the people that uh, had mentioned that on Twitter this week. So thanks to him, because that was something I saw. I was kind of watching in real time as you problem solved that. <laughs> issue <Yeah. laughs> you know uh, over on twitter but he also had some other nice things to say in our uh, in feedback we've been getting a lot of great feedback on twitter so each week i'm just sort of pulling uh, a few things that jumped out at me in addition to alerting us to the overcast issue he said i love the first two episodes uh he said um can't wait for the next one love the insight and enthusiasm so that was really nice of him to say um well, and we i think had- enthusiasm is our main i mean that's the real thing here is you know we don't know any more than anybody else out there who's just a big metal fan but we are big metal fans so hopefully yeah, that's what even people the stuff get out we don't it. know we're really excited about yeah. so <laughs> so even when i don't know what i'm talking about i'm really excited <laughs> about talking about it so uh let's see who else matt mason said i'm absolutely with brian on the south of heaven and mandatory suicide thing this was back in our slayer episode he said once you've heard those songs live they get the adrenaline flowing whenever you hear them uh think the tv program anthony refers to was old BBC Two arena documentary yes. on heavy metal. He said, I wore my VHS recording out as a teenager. As did I, yeah. I think that is the show. Arena is a, a long, long-running uh, sort of culture and arts show uh, on the BBC. It's been going, God, I, I mean, I can't remember a time when I was alive that I don't remember it being on the air. It's been running for years and years. Um, most notable for having uh, a Brian Eno song for its theme tune. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. One of the tracks from Another Green World. I think it might even be Another Green World. I can't quite remember. Um, yeah, one of his ambient tracks is, and the logo, the title sequence, I should say rather, is literally a bottle, like floating down a body of water towards the camera with the title Arena written on it in sort of neon letters. That's it. As this Brian Eno music plays, it is so very BBC. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, the the shows that I used to videotape uh, were. Obviously, Headbangers Ball, which I think everybody's familiar with, um, on MTV, that was where most of the metal videos uh, came right, at yeah. the time. And then there was an old show on uh, on one of the major networks here in the States that was called Friday Night Videos. And it was sort of my first introduction to music videos when I didn't have cable because I didn't have MTV. This show, Friday Night Videos, was uh, awesome. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the notes to the intro to it because it's mm. this great, totally '80s like animated intro where this guy is tied to, uh, he's actually being held hostage on a record, on a record player, on a turntable. It's it's pretty interesting. Wow. Um, okay, we'll we'll have to put links to both of those in the show notes then, just so people yep. can see the the difference. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I, ju- I just wanted to mention uh, Matt Mason actually made that comment on our Patreon page. Mm. Uh, so two things there. First, if you if you haven't already had enough, got sick of us talking about it by now, we are supported by Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and you too can uh, help support the show and ask us questions for the video hangouts that we are going to be recording. And we're actually going to be recording the very first one after we finish recording this show. But also I wanted yep. to mention it because 
uh, Patreon's thread and commenting system is, shall we say, not the best. Uh, and I actually tried to respond to Matt's comment on the Patreon page about five times. And yep. every single time it kept losing my comment. So uh, sorry about that, Matt. Uh, but we did get your comment and uh, we like it very much. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And as you said, the, the questions we're sort of putting aside for the video hangout stuff. But if it's just a straight comment, it's probably something that we'll, we'll pull and, uh, oh, sure, and throw yeah. out on here, especially if it's for a specific episode. Um, Casanova Quinn said, Anthony is crazy because I totally dig Death Magnetic. So that goes back to our Metallica episode yeah. where we were talking about St. Anger and obviously uh, Death Magnetic was their latest one, which is a very divisive record. So Anthony is not alone in not necessarily liking that record. But uh, but I do dig it more than St. Anger for sure. It's not, it's not that I dislike it. I just, there's, it's one of those things that, you know, and I've talked about this on um, albums that we've already covered on the show. It didn't grab me. There was nothing in it that really sort of, yeah, like literally the I haven't listened to it in a long time, I admit, but the only riff I can remember from the entire album is I think the opening track, the That Was Your Life or whatever, you know, there's sort of yes. dun 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 that's the dun, only dun, 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 dun. That's yeah. the only riff I can remember from the entire album. And that's not a good sign for a Metallica album, you know? To me anyway. So Yes. Well and I I'll, and we didn't I don't know that we talked about this, but I think the other thing too is we've all lowered our standards for Metallica now. Because <laughs> of uh, because of the the disasters that some of these albums have been over the years, since they're great stuff, and this is me talking, so people may disagree with this, but we're all looking for some sort of not necessarily recapturing of the Kill 'Em All and Ride the Lightning days, but some sort of sign that Metallica have sort of recovered their sound or they found their feet again, and so any progress at all, I think a lot of us are are trying to be very forgiving of. And so for for if this was not a Metallica album, then I think it would be judged more harshly. You know what I mean? Like, I do mm-hmm. think they still get the benefit of the doubt a lot of the times because of the credibility that they've built up over the years that they've earned. But I do think there are uh, there's a, a lot of fans out there who they just want a good Metallica album so badly that they are willing to forgive a lot of faults. Right. And so I think anytime we get a new one, we're all very hopeful. Like, this is the one. This is the one that's going to do it. <laughs> You're right, but they also suffer from the opposite, sort of the inverse of that, which is that if an unknown band had released Load, that would have been album of the year. Do you know what I mean? Like that everybody would have gone, wow, what an amazing album. This is fantastic. It's so heavy and raw and it rocks and blah, blah, blah. But because it was Metallica and therefore not what everybody was expecting, it got a really bad rap. It's kind of like Alien 3. Like Alien 3 is a pretty good movie. But it is nothing. It's nothing compared to Alien and Aliens. Yeah. It's exactly that problem. It's. I mean, you're right that they get the benefit of the doubt, but they also get the the not benefit of the doubt. I'm not sure what the opposite of that you'd call that. Well, I, I think you're <laughs> right in that they don't they don't get the benefit of the doubt in the in the conversation in the community. But the bottom line is we all bought it anyways, and I think right. that's where they always <laughs> get the benefit of the doubt is that everybody will always buy Metallica albums, even though. We'll buy them and bitch about them and say how much we hate them and we don't like them and this wasn't what I wanted it to be or whatever, which I think other bands don't get that. Uh, even great bands nowadays don't get the type of music sales you know, where Metallica, people will just blindly buy the next Metallica right. album. They could put it out tomorrow and say, we just recorded this over the weekend and it wouldn't be number one on the Billboard chart here in the States because they're Metallica. And so you know, we they get judged in the court of public opinion maybe but all those people judging them are consumers that just bought their new album so where uh, that that doesn't always happen and hey look at that another parallel to comics 
Yeah, there, it's a, <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. I, I almost used, I almost said, well, it's the internet, the judging, but Metallica has been around for so long, it's not. It's uh, the, yeah, everybody yeah. at the record shops, it's everybody. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. No, I, thing, I but, remember people bitching about the Black Album and how that was their sellout album because it wasn't Master of Puppets version two, you know? Sure. Yeah, and I was probably one of those kids that was complaining about that. Like, what the <laughs> hell is this? Now they're going on tour with Linkin Park. You got to be freaking kidding me! <laughs> hey, um, I like Linkin Park. We'll probably do well, that in a future episode. We will, <laughs> yeah, we'll fight about Linkin Park down the road. Uh, I think I mentioned Linkin Park some, at some point today when we're talking about uh, this album here. So, right, okay, uh, okay. Well, all so right, let's so see. Let's... Let me just get. I just got two more real quick to get oh, through. Uh, so. Now we're talking about the Anthrax episode that we did. Talon said, listening to Thrash It Out, now I have to go dig through the Anthrax discography, which of course mm. is music to our ears because that's what we want you to do. Um, let's see. John, my buddy, said, gotta be honest, guys, not a fan of this album. I bought it back in the day and listened to it only a few times. It was too basic for me and lacked the Anthrax key time changes and killer riffs. He said, I'd give this album a C plus. Great discussion, though, on the episode. Keep up the good work. So oh, so this is your friend assessment. John, is it? Right. Yes. I, I and and he'll, be, he'll be complaining to me too as we go through some of the stuff that I pick on this, on <laughs> but this too. Isn't, but, uh, isn't, that, isn't he the friend who you said was just you know a, a massive like 80s thrash and Megadeth yes. fan? So, he is the guy you know. that I still go to all these shows with. Right. So whenever an 80s band comes around, you know, he's the guy who, uh, well, we'll talk about some of the bands that we've seen because people get a good laugh out of them. But yeah. Um, and then we ended up having a good conversation with Don Cardenas, who has had some great Con, uh, just comments on mm. Twitter and great sort of conversation starting uh, tweets. We ended up talking about the next four. So oh, we started yeah, yeah. talking about John Bush leaving Anthrax. We talked about sort of the way he was treated on the way out. And we had a good conversation about that, which people can certainly go back and, and check out uh, between us. But that conversation morphed into the idea of, so you've got your big four with Megadeth, Metallica, Anthrax, Slayer. Who would be next? Who right. would be Who's the, the next, next bunch four, of bands? Yeah. Um, and I think what he came up with, uh, because we went back and forth, he came up with Testament, Armored Saint, Exodus, and Overkill. So he was very big into uh, Armored Saint and John Bush and, and thought that they deserved a place in that next tier it, of uh, bands. He only included Testament after I mentioned them, though. There was another band that he, I can't can't recall now, but there was another band he named first. And I said, well, well I think he threw out those Testament. three and you were like, hey, what about Testament? Uh, right, and okay, so he was yeah. like, oh, yeah, okay, that's my right. four. But then there's uh, also Halloween, there's Creator. Uh, yes. you know, it turns out there's a lot more than four. <laughs> right. And I, and mine that I threw out there just in that conversation in the moment were Testament, Exodus, Suicidal Tendencies, ah, and Overkill, yeah, I so thought were yeah. sort of, uh, especially if we're talking like, you know, thrash at the time, like that Exodus is such an interesting story because their album came out like a year later because of multiple reasons. And because they sort of missed that initial window of when all of these bands were putting out their big first albums they sort of missed out on being part of that conversation but i do feel like if they had come out just a little bit earlier exodus would be talked about in those circles but yeah i i was never a, a subscriber to the notion of that there's these big four and then there's everybody else because there's probably about 10 bands 10 bands just here in the states and obviously when you go beyond the states you know you've got a, a ton of bands that you would throw in there as well so those are all uh, bands that we will get to at some point, I'm sure, yeah. on the show. <laughs> Somewhere down the line. <laughs> and I think that's all I had for feedback this week. But I know that people have been leaving great stuff on Twitter, and I, I will pull stuff every week to bring and talk on the show. All right. Awesome. Uh, yes, and everybody, thank you for your feedback. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. And speaking of listening, uh, so let's talk about The Defiled. Um, because, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that you hadn't heard of them. I... 
I don't even know that much about them, to be perfectly honest, uh, because I, I'm not, you know, I admit, I'm an old man now. I don't read Kerrang! every week anymore. Um, but I know I'm kind of, I kind of feel like I should get a subscription to right. it now though. I like I, <laughs> Start it, this, this, show it, is, yeah. this show is making um, me pine well, for that for sure. Well, but what I've all, I have always tried to, even though I am not, you know, as hardcore a metal as I used to be when I was younger, I've always tried to keep up with what's going on. Um, and, uh, part of that used to be not, I haven't watched it in a while. I think it's kind of morphed and changed now, but there used to be a, a uh, digital only channel over here in the UK called Scuzz, Scuzz TV, which was a metal channel. And I mean, and not just, you know, it wasn't just sort of really extremely popular stuff. They would cover lots of underground stuff. I mean, they had in- an interview with Within Temptation some years back, which is just like, you know, most people over here have never even heard of them. Um, and I was watching a video show on that. And basically the last... This is my slightly controversial opinion, is that since the era of Slipknot, there hasn't really been anything exciting, new and different sounding in the metal scene. There's been lots of good stuff. Don't get me wrong. Lots of good stuff. Lots of you know good metalcore stuff. Trivium, Killswitch, Engage. That's good. Lots of new thrash bands like Bullet For My Valentine. All great stuff. But, and the Eurosymphonic metal stuff like Within Temptation and Flowing Tears, but it was starting to feel for a long time like we hadn't had anything that was actually really new and exciting and heavy. Like the the rise of the symphonic metal band, that is kind of new and exciting, but a lot of it's not very heavy, you know? Um, And I was, because I wasn't, emo, I'm afraid, didn't do a lot for me. Musically, it was kind of dull. Um, you know, I have no problem with the sort of sentiments. I'm the biggest goth around, but the, the music just didn't do a lot for me. Sure. It's it kind of soft rock being sold as metal to me. Um, yes. And, and then I was watching, as I say, a show on, uh, Scuzz and I think it was just a video compilation show. And I think I'd actually just seen another, I can't even remember who it was, but another sort of standard post metal emo style band. And I was starting to despair. And then, uh, Suddenly, Resurrectionists came on. Now, that track isn't on this album, but it was on their first album, Grave Times. Uh, and I sent you a link to the video, so you saw, and that's the exact video that I saw. Uh, and within within the first 20 seconds, I was suddenly sitting up on my chair yep. thinking, wait a second, who the fuck is this? Because this is really, really good. And don't you love that? And it's because, as you said, like it happens so much more rarely nowadays that when that does happen you're like oh uh, and the great thing is you can immediately like track down their stuff like back in the day it right. was you'd hear a song <laughs> on the radio or something and you'd be like who i missed i missed when the dj said who that was and you're yeah. trying to figure out like who <laughs> what was that band what's that band's name and nowadays it's like oh the defiled oh cool i'll go pick up their album right now but yeah it is pull out your iphone day. look it up yeah yeah exactly or, although and then you, you, with this particular band actually when that when I saw that, at the time I saw that, they had only released one album, one EP on one album. So it's not uh-huh. it's not that I couldn't get on the internet and look them up. It was just that there wasn't actually that much to find. But also was- exciting in a way because you you can get in on the ground floor where that's also um that's also really fun too. It is, although <laughs> they actually formed ten years ago. So it, it's kind of sort of on the ground floor, but actually they'd already been a band for I think six years before they released that first full album. Um, well, and, and I just want to touch on that point for a second, because when we start talking about some of the 80s bands, especially some of the ones that I'll bring on the show, 
um, one of my things that I would always talk about is that every band that I grew up with, their first album was amazing. Like every band had an amazing first album during the 80s. The sophomore slump hit many of them, but that first album was always great. And it was because many of these bands had been around for 10 or 15 years before they got their first record deal. And so they had basically 10 years to make their first album. So we forget that sometimes where a lot of these bands have been, they've been playing out, they've been honing their songs, they've been working on their material. And so, you know, that the first effort of any band should be great because that is the album that they've had the longest to to work on. After that, they sort of get into the groove of having to put one out every few years or maybe three or four or whatever. But um, but yeah, that's always interesting, and I think easy to forget sometimes that that those bands are sort of putting their best foot forward, hopefully with their first album. Yeah. Well, and ironically, the collapse of the music industry since the early two thousands has actually helped that in a sense, because now how do bands make money by touring and selling merch? Right. So pretty much every band, every band that is a, a you know an actual instrument playing group of people band, is out there playing live all the time because that's the only way they can earn money anymore sure um so it's actually yeah that helps them as, as i say hone their craft and you know as you say have sort of effectively have years to practice recording their first album so and that's definitely what happened with this band as i say i, I don't know an awful lot about them but i know they formed in 2005 uh they immediately just started touring everywhere and they'd been touring pretty much constantly by the time they recorded their first ep and their first album uh, they've been through a few lineup changes. You've got uh, Stitch D uh, is guitar and vocals. The AVD is on keyboards, and those two are the, clearly the principal songwriters. Yep. You had a guy called Aaron Curse on second guitar, but he left. You had a guy called Drex Exel on bass, but he left. Um, and originally, just a drum machine. Um, I'm pretty sure that this album, Daggers, is actually the first with real live drums on it. Um, the... EP definitely was a drum machine, and I think Grave Times was as well. Uh, or if not a machine, it's somebody, some really precise session player playing triggers because, you know, it's clearly not a real drum sound. Uh-huh. Um, and the guy that plays drums on this album, his, his nickname is Needles. He yeah. has been around for years and years and years and years. And first of all, he's phenomenal on this album. Yes, and he you is. can really hear. I... I, I I bristle at the idea of not having an actual drummer in a band. That, that, <laughs> although I know that for for certain genres of music, that makes perfect sense for them to, um, you know, have that be part of of the sound that's synthesized and stuff like that. But I, especially when we talk about live bands and stuff like that, like, and this guy delivers on this album, so that's interesting because I thought the drums were one of the high points of this album. Yeah, yeah. Well, they uh, by the time they recorded their first album, they had a drummer to play live certainly at least by then with i just think they didn't have anybody to record with or maybe they couldn't afford because well and i read that the avd who is as you mentioned one of the top two guys in the band who does the keyboards and everything that he originally played drums with them Um, right he's listed as in 2005 as drums so he's he's obviously hits to all fields with his you know, yeah. musical well, talent. And he programmed he the, the early drum machines as well. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's, I mean, Needles is something like their 12th drummer or something. So it's a bit spinal tapish, you know, yeah. they've, uh, you know, been through a revolving door, but the, the point being that the, I sent you two tracks off of Grave Times, the first album. And, uh, even from those two tracks, you can probably tell that it's, as I say, it's either a machine or it's somebody right. playing through serious triggers. Um, but it still kind of works. You know, it's programmed in a way that it still sounds like a real drum kit. It's not one of those 
impossible drum programs that no human could actually play. Sure. Which I think is, you know, important to this style of music. Um, yeah, oh, and the bassist, now they have a guy called Vincent Hyde uh, on bass, and he's great, actually. Uh, I, You know, this feels like it could be a stable lineup for them, finally, and I kind of hope it is, um, because they all seem to fit really well. And uh, they tell a story. Uh, Vincent Hyde's first gig with them was at Sonisphere, which is like a massive festival. That was his first gig with them. I don't think his first gig ever, but his first gig with this band. Um, like, what a way to, to debut. Um, and, uh, he apparently, by the second song, he was crowd surfing with his bass. Well, there you go. <laughs> and that was the moment. That's when, a good way to ingratiate yourself with the fans. Yeah. That was the moment when, uh, Stitch and the AVD apparently looked at one another and went, yep. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah, we've got the right guy. <laughs> These guys seem to have, I, I, I did pull a couple of quotes because, uh, the AVD seems to be the one who does a lot of the interviews. Yes. Um, when, when they want to talk to somebody from the band. And so they talked a little bit about how this record was crowdfunded. I think they did it through Pledge Music, um, mm, which is yes. something that uh, Megadeth is using right now. Queensryche is using right now. We talked about Queensryche last week. A lot of a lot of bands are now turning to uh, Pledge Music to to at least help with some of the cost. But the interview interviewer asked him, um, said that your fans uh, put money into the record. What do you think of these sorts of opportunities for fans to support the bands that way? They feel more personal with the release. Does it feel more personal than just you know putting a record out without sort of crowdfunding? And he replied. He said, let's just say The Defiled wouldn't be around if it wasn't for them. So it's very personal for us. We have their names in the album. We know them. We have a very hardcore group of fans that we know by their first names, and we hang out with them, and we're lucky to have that on a personal level. So you, know, you talk about the bass player crowd surfing with the crowd. It, from what I've read um, about these guys, they are, number one, thought of very highly for their live performances, and number two, um, seem to be one of those bands that really likes to interact with the fans and... Um, fans just have this really strong connection with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of that is just because they are a good live band who plays live a lot. Yep. Um, you know, that's the sort of thing that will... And then you start getting people coming to the shows again and again and again. And if you're still sort of not famous enough that you just hang out in the bar afterwards with the fans, it's inevitable, you know, that uh, you're going to pick up that sort of fan base. And he also was asked at one point, what's the writing process? And this goes back to what you said about the two main members of the band. They said, what's the writing and recording process for you? He said, me and Stitch get in a room and we write the album. He writes most of the music and arranging. I write most of the lyrics and the electronics. Um, so it seems like those two are definitely the driving yeah. force of the band for sure. Yeah. yeah. And do you, do you remember when having a keyboard player in a metal band was heresy? <laughs> well, it's funny because I remember when it was awesome and then it was heresy, and now, and now it it's seems awesome again. to be awesome again. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I remember, I'll never forget, I went to see Dio play, and Dio has always had you know keyboards and stuff in, in his uh, bands, but I went to see them play with Anthrax, and I brought a friend with me who was not a huge metalhead. He's the same guy I dragged to this Mayhem Festival a few weeks ago. And when the keyboard player came out in his sort of frilly you know, outfit and... Um, just had a lot of pomp and a lot of flair when he was out there and was strutting his stuff playing the keyboard. My friend looked at me like, what the hell is this? I was like, buddy, that's Dio. That's how you rock the keyboard. This guy knew his way around the keyboard. I, we just saw Europe play. Um, wow. And they have an amazing keyboard player and he killed it. I'm like, so yeah, we are back in that time now where uh, it is very cool once again to have a keyboard player, especially because of the way bands like The Defiled and and you know some of these newer bands are are using that in the right. sound well, of and, the band. For and sure. that, that was the thing in the eighties. Like I think it was Seventh Son of a Seventh Son 
the Iron Maiden album was the I think that I was believe the f- that was the first Maiden album to use keyboards, and people went fucking spare. Yep. <laughs> it was like, oh my god, what are you doing? You're ruining you know the metal and all that. Uh, but that was the keyboards on that were very sort of eighties synth lines. Uh, whereas now, yeah, keyboards are being used much more as sort of for atmosphere and weird electronic sounds and sampling yes. and you know all that. Which sort of is stuff. how these guys use them, and they're yep. they're in in that. When we talk about the whole, you know, listen multiple times to the album thing, this is one of those albums where the more that I listen to it, the more of that background sound that I'm picking up. Absolutely, because it doesn't overwhelm. And I think now, I've never heard them mention typo negative, but I wonder, I mean, they are goths, they make no secret of that. So I wonder if typo negative and Josh Silver's keyboard style in particular is an influence on that because one of the things I always loved about Typo was that Josh's keyboards, I mean, obviously there's occasional piano lines and stuff which are very prominent, but there are tracks where you think there are no keyboards on them until you listen to them again and again and maybe on headphones and then you hear that there are these subtle textures propping it up, as it were, like in the background, just adding that little touch of atmosphere and that's all Josh. And a lot of the Defiled tracks, especially on this album, feel like they do that you know, a similar sort of thing. And so I do wonder if that's if that's an influence and that's contributing, as you say, to the sort of modern yeah. way that keyboards integrate into metal bands. And you, it's funny you mentioned influences because I, I searched through a bunch of interviews and they don't talk a lot about influences. I heard at one point um, someone asked one of the guys, like, how did you get into heavy metal? And, and I think his answer was, I think my dad picked up an obituary record at some point in oh, time. Wow. And that might have been my first <laughs> introduction to, uh, to metal. Um, so yeah, so I've, I think I've heard uh, Stitch, Stitch has said, I did see one interview where Stitch said that his favorite album was Nevermind. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. And that that was the album that sort of made him want to be a musician. Uh, cause he was, you know, he's still quite young, obviously. So he was very young when that came out and the AVD said that his favorite album was Downward Spiral, Nine Inch Nails. Oh, well, that makes perfect sense. It, it does, doesn't Especially it? Especially with what he's bringing to the band. Yeah. Well, when, you, when you sort of take that in context and then you look at the sort of music they make, you're like, yeah, okay, okay, that you're right. That makes perfect sense. Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, oh, <laughs> I've got to mention this just before we get into the album. Um, they've, so they have a great reputation for being a live band. They, are, they won the Metal Hammer Golden Gods Best New Band Award in 2012, I think. And Grave Times itself was actually given away on the front of Metal Hammer. That was how it oh, was nice. released, in quote marks, as it were, was that it was actually released as a giveaway disc on the front of Metal Hammer, um, because they didn't have a deal at the time, I assume. Um, but one of the things they did last year, I think it was, uh, I don't know whether you saw this, was they went and played a set on an iceberg. I did not see that, but that sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> it was a stunt for Jägermeister, who they they've played on the Jägermeister stage at yep. uh, festivals, you know, quite often. Metallica they- did something like that at one point too, where they they were in some um, like frozen arena, right? Or for a fe- and it might have been a Jägermeister thing. Now that I think about it. Uh, well, but Jägermeister, they call it the ice cold gig. Yeah, exactly. They, they apparently have done this with several bands, but this was the first one that they did on an actual floating iceberg in the water. <laughs> Well, that's a nice thing to put <laughs> on your musical resume. There is a video, like 30-minute sort of making of video, and then a, some clips of the of the gig, a gig, I say, um, online on YouTube. I will post a link to that in the show notes. Because it, I mean, it's, it's a good watch anyway, just because the band are clearly having a blast, and it's quite interesting. But also, you know, there's some good performances there. There is some controversy 
over whether or not they are actually playing live on the iceberg or whether they recorded a live set and are then lip syncing to it on yep. the boat. I, I'm not technically minded enough to know whether or not, you know, which is more likely, but nevertheless, it is worth watching because yeah, you know, they are clearly there. And even if they're, even if they're just miming, they are still clearly standing there with their instruments strumming exactly. away on an iceberg. And that's pretty yep. fucking cool. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh, Ari, so you're going to put a link to that in the show notes? Yes. Yes, I will. Awesome. Um, so before we dive into track by track, I mean, just sort of general thoughts about the album and and these guys uh, on Wikipedia, they're talked about as industrial metal. This is where we start getting into these genres that right, I yeah. don't feel like I have a perfect, you know, handle on. Um, I feel how like would they you, only where have do you that. feel like they fit? Yeah, I feel like they only have that because of the keyboard, like and uh-huh. sampling stuff. And if it wasn't for that, I really don't think they would get put in that category at all. Um, I would call it modern groove metal. Okay. Um, they actually kind of feel. Like if you like uh sort of old school Pantera stuff, like yep. you know, um Vogue Display of Power and Cowboys from Hell, that sort of era, I really think you might like this. I mean, they sound very different, but it's got that sure. same kind of it's not just straight ahead, four on the floor metal. Like yes. it's it's heavy, but it has got a bit of swing and bounce to it. It's got a groove. I agree with that, and it's funny you you mentioned that because I'm so as I was trying to kind of define some of this stuff for myself like i feel like there's a lot of bands that there's there's somewhat of a formula whereas i can look back at 80s metal and say this is there's a very specific formula that not everybody always sticks to but but it's sort of the foundation that a lot of songs are built out of and i think for a lot of the the more modern metal it seems like there it's obviously very angst driven there's a lot of growling during the during the main verse and then for bands that have the range they'll sing during the chorus and you so you'll get more a more melodic chorus and then instead of a what i used to always call the mosh part of a song like for anthrax and stuff like that there's the jump around part and i think a lot of times that's where the sort of groove comes in too is there's this very specific part of the song where the whole crowd is meant to be jumping you know up and down at the live show and stuff right, like the that the breakdown um, yeah exactly um and they play with that formula here. They don't always stick to it, but I, that that's sort of, uh, I think one of the things that took me about this album was that it was much more melodic than I initially thought that it would be. I, I, they sort of surpassed my expectations with that. And that's one of the things I love about them is that mm-hmm. they they clearly can do the gent, dun, 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 uh, you know, like yep. just heavy down tune to a whatever stuff. But then, yes, they also, and I think this is probably the Nirvana influence, they also have these big choruses, uh, you know, that you can sing along to, and but they, they're they in character. It's not like they sound like suddenly two different songs or something, because they, they blend them and carry them through really well. And so it is a little surprising when, I mean, the first time I saw Resurrectionist video, the start of that, as you know, is heavy as hell. You know, and it does it, it does groove and it bounces around, but it is really, really heavy and down tuned. And I'm like, and I was still enjoying. It. I was thinking, oh, this is great. But then when they got to the chorus, I was like, well, even better. That's it. I'm I'm sold. I'm sure. in because this is such a great chorus as well. And I think the first song in the album probably fits into that category as well. Um, yes. So yes, I there's to me with where you're balancing these types of sounds that that these guys are all you know putting into their songs. They're for my musical ear there's a particular balance that i like you know i like when the electronica sort of uh, is a compliment and doesn't take 
center stage in the songs. I think they do a great job with that. I like when there's a good balance between the growls and the uh, and you know the more melodic parts of the song. And I like when there's a certain energy to the songs that feels very sort of um, forward momentum to me. Yeah. And I think w- overall with this album, there are several songs where they hit that balance really well, and it's killer. And then there's a few songs that don't do it for me, and I feel like they took their foot off the gas a little bit. Right, but I, right. I think overall, when these guys have that combination, that balance sort of right where it needs to be, it's fierce. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and for that alone, that's why I enjoyed the album. Well, and energy is a real big part, I think, of their appeal. Uh-huh. Certainly to me, as you say, like a lot of this album just feels so energetic. And again, the I mean, again, this as I said last week, uh this album isn't perfect and neither is Grave Times. I think this is a better sure. album and a more coherent album. But you can tell that they are still they're still kind of finding their feet. They're still, you know, sort of getting into their own groove. But that was why I sent you those two particular tracks from the yep. last album, which were Resurrectionists, well, they are Resurrectionists and Call to Arms, because they are the two tracks off that album that really hit that, as you say, that have that energy, the great riffs, the great choruses, and really kind of sum up the band. Yeah, and the, and when we t- talk about, you know, albums overall, like, None of them are, well, there might be a few very perfect few, albums out few. there, but we talked about some, cla- I mean, we talked about South of Heaven for crying out loud. That's not a perfect album. That's considered to be one of the greatest thrash albums of all time. So, right. you know, even the best bands struggle to put an entire album together where there's no tracks that sort of let up or don't necessarily fit perfectly within the vision. So hey, e- um, even, uh, even Ride the Lightning has escape, you know? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, and that is, I mean, that is the ultimate, almost perfect thrash album. And even that's got one dodgy track. It's, you know, you yep. can't, you can't win. <laughs> absolutely. There, it, it's just, it, it's hard to put the entire package together and have it be perfect. It but, really uh, is. but yeah, the, these guys, when they find that balance, they really lock in as a unit and yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So let's get into the album. It is sure. called Daggers. Uh, it is 46 minutes long with 11 tracks, which is a nice, I think that's just right. That's sort of, you know, Me we've too. had very short albums with the Slayer stuff. We've had very long albums with Metallica and Queensryche. And this yep. kind of falls neatly in between. I think this is just 45 minutes, you know, is just about right, I think, for a metal album. And I think I'm just looking, I think the longest song is four minutes and 41 seconds. So everything's under yeah. five minutes here. There's some that stick closer to the three minute mark. Um, most are about four and change, which to me is perfect. Yeah. And I actually, uh, one of the interviews that I saw with them talking about recording this album was that some of the songs on this, including the ballad, uh, towards the end, which we'll get to, were actually much longer to start with. And the producer that they work with, um, encouraged them to like, you know, shorten them down. It was like, no, cut that, cut that, cut that, make it shorter, That's make great it tighter. Feedback. Yeah. And it worked. Absolutely. Yep. It was absolutely the right call. And you mentioned the producer, Jason Sukoff, who also was well-known. He's done a ton of stuff, but he's he's well-known for uh, producing Trivium, Death Angel, Battlecross, and Deicide. Uh, Trivium is one that he's worked a lot with. I so. didn't know he'd done Deicide. Wow. Uh, yep. I did know that he'd done Motionless in White, who are a band Oh, yeah. That, he's got a laundry list for sure. Right. Well, and The Defiled get compared to Motionless in White quite a lot. And they are actually, mm. they are one of my favorite new bands from America. Um for much the many of the same reasons that I like the Defiled, Motionless in White feel feel like they have a very similar attitude, um, and uh, yeah, so I really like them as well. So when I saw, 
I mean, I'd already heard the album before I looked, found this out, but when I saw that he had, the producer had worked with them as well, I was like, oh, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. So, and I'm always into, I'm, I'm even more interested nowadays to see like who's producing these albums because it's, it's something I think that back in the day, unless you were a huge name producer, people didn't really talk about the producers of the albums that much. They weren't, I don't think they were given that much credit. I think nowadays there's much more of an appreciation for who's, who's sort of behind the board in as these albums are being made. And especially when you see their, their sort of portfolio of who they've worked with, you start to get a real feel for why albums sound the way that they do. Mm. Uh, you, I don't know. You might be right. It's, I'm, I was always aware of it and I always paid attention, but then I, did, I was the guy who used to read Kerrang! from cover to cover every week and you know had a subscription to Metal Hammer and blah, blah, blah. So maybe I was unusual in that respect. Well, I, I mean, like I knew like Mutt Lang, I knew, you know, Bob Rock back in the day and, uh, and stuff like that. But I think, you know, a lot of these other guys, I didn't, I didn't know back then, but right. I'm, I'm starting to learn a lot more about now for sure. Yeah. All right. So, uh, track by track, let's go. So the first, it opens with a track called Sleeper, mm-hmm. uh, that has a really, I love the opening of this. Partly because it completely throws you off. I mean, it's got like synth brass and string sounds and stuff. And you're like, what exactly is this going to be? But then it it, it doesn't last very long. It builds up. It's a really good build up and then just drops bang into the riff. Yep, I misjudged them twice on this track, which I think was a pleasant surprise for me. One with the opening, and then when it kicks in, I was like, "Oh, I've heard this before. Like, I I know this style. Right. You know, this is what this is going to be." And then they switched it up on me again. So oh, okay. by the time I got through the first track, I was like, "Oh, okay. There's more than meets the eye here." So now there, you're all turned around and you don't know what to expect. Well, by the time I was done with the first track, I was like, "Okay, now these guys have impressed me." with this first song now because you know you have that build up as you mentioned which is sort of this sort of industrial and classical you know build up as you're coming into the song and i was like huh i wonder where this is going and then it just kicks in with a very up tempo and killer riff with the with the sort of white noise in the background you know that kind of stuff and when it kicks in and you get the sort of growly screaming vocals um 
that's when I was like, oh, this is where the formula kicks in of this is what this type of song is like, and this is what I can expect from this. And then it ended up certainly with the chorus. I was going to say, melodic. was it the chorus that threw you the second time? Yeah, it was the chorus that threw me the second time. And it, but I also felt like that the song overall had a very epic feel to it. Like it feels like a, the song kind of starts off very tight and then it just sort of opens up. Yeah. And so by the time the first song was over, I was like, oh, the, there's a this there's a bigger scope going on here. This wasn't just um you know, a really tight straight ahead cut. This was something that started that way but then sort of opened up and I was like, wow, these guys have a lot of range and I th- I'm not sure what to expect out of the rest of the album, but I do like the table that they've set here. They could go a lot of different ways with this. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's I'm so glad that it had you know that effect on you, as it were, because yeah, that's I think that's precisely what this track is intended to achieve. And, and I feel like it hits that balance too that we just yes. talked about. And one of the notes that I made for myself was if the whole album was this relentless, it would be a classic. Like <laughs> it just like I just felt like this is where they're this is where they're in the zone right yeah, here. So yeah. it's as a, as an well, opener and that great co- opener. again, that chorus, man, you know, like they, they write some great, great choruses, some really good, you know, you can tell that they are a band that is used to, to playing live because they write great choruses that you can just picture yourself being at a gig and singing stroke shouting along with. You yes. Know? And I think it, when you, it's when you write a chorus that builds on, the track that you're playing up to that point it's the equivalent of riding a dirt bike down a huge ramp and when you hit the <laughs> end of the ramp you're sort of go like you want to be on the upswing you want to be you want to carry that momentum that you've built through the verse in through the chorus and then that's what gets people fired up and that's what gets people jumping up and down and, and you know singing along with the song and stuff like that and i felt like they did that here because the chorus just gets the chorus is like going off the end of a ramp and it just gets big what a great analogy <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because like the the thing to me that um, I struggle with sometimes is a lot of bands like to get tricky, and Megadeth is is one that's guilty of this sometimes. And they, you know, with time changes, or they really like to throw you a, a you know a curveball as you're listening to the song. And sometimes that just takes you right out of the momentum of the song. Yeah, when it flows well, as I think it does in this first track, it's like they're they're killing you with that just straight ahead you know, and really fast. And then they hit this big chorus yep. and it's just like, that's perfect. And so great opening tune. And I think a lot of that, I think the art of songwriting or part of the art of songwriting anyway, is judgment. Like is literally just going, is this too far? Does this work? Does this fit with the rest of it? Mm-hmm. Regardless of the genre. And I think that's, an area where these guys, they have really good judgment about that. Or, you know, maybe the producer helped them and they decided it. But either way, they came to a really good conclusion and I think feel like they just have good taste in that area. And that is what makes them such good songwriters. Yeah, and you mentioned the producer who's helping the, a good producer. And obviously, I draw a lot of analogies to writing, and I'm sure you do as well, as you, you know, sort of look at the choices that are being made in, in certain songs, uh, not just lyrically, but in their design and their makeup and their composition. Um, having a good producer is like having a good editor, yeah. you know, who can who can sort of hold up the mirror to you and say, well, why don't you look at this and, you know, and, and doesn't, doesn't take over, but at the same time helps you kind of get the best out of every song. No, I agree. I, I feel a good producer is exactly like an editor, and too many bands, especially when they get huge, uh, you know, could do with a, an editor. Basically, somebody 
willing to stand there and go, actually, that's terrible. Yep. See episode <laughs> one of this podcast. <laughs> um, the, the one other thing about this song, and it, again, sort of helps set you up for the rest of the album and gives you an idea of what you're in for, is that, yes, you've got this really hard, brutal riff You've got uh, Stitch screaming at the top of his lungs, and then you've got the big soaring chorus. And, you know, even, I mean, that's great. But even that, you might think, well, you know, I've kind of heard something like that before. But then, just in case you thought it was all getting a bit sort of standard emo, in the post chorus, you've got this lovely atonal chord change that goes right back down to the root with the AVD playing these really off key high notes yep. over the top. And that, I feel, is kind of, that's another part of the statement of intent of like, yeah, you think you know us from this, you know, from what you've heard of the first sure. 40 seconds of this song, but here, now we're going to throw you off again. Right. And and you might not get all of that out of the song if you just listen to it once. So once again, this is an album that, you know, I probably listened to it at least 10 times over the past week. Oh, wow. And so I just, I have it on in the car, I have it on in my MP3 player, and then I make notes as I go. So I start making notes around the third listen of of the album. And and the more you listen to it, the more you pick up all the different things that they're doing with that song. Right. And so it's I, I will say, though, rewards. that e- even if you don't listen to it multiple times, this track is still... Oh, it'll still punch you in the face. Right. When it comes out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you can listen to it and be like, oh, damn. Like that you'll, you'll get a feel. But the more you dig in, the more you're going to get out yeah. of this for sure. Absolutely. All right. Track two Unspoken. This is interesting because this track was originally called Daggers. It was going to be the title track. Okay. Um, But apparently they decided not to tie in the title. They didn't want to tie down the title of the album to a particular track, which I think is quite sensible. Um, But when you know that and when you hear them talking about the track, it all makes a lot much more sense. Like this track is, you know, about betrayal and deceit and how... Uh, life will always let you down. You know, a lovely, happy uh, subject like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Very <laughs> uplifting, very positive, very hopeful. Um, did you uh, see the music video for this one? I did. Did I see the music video? For I'm this not sure one? if I sent it to you. Um, it's quite a good music video. It's a sort of, uh, rather than a performance video, it is a sort of slight acting video where Stitch and the AVD 
I don't know, go to betray one another, like they're shaking hands while they've got a dagger. Oh, yes. Each got a dagger tucked behind their back, and then they get dragged away by the other band Which is the cover, and, uh, which is sort of the, the cover motif as right. well. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's not the best video in the world, but it's interesting to see it anyway. Um, I like when they do something different with the videos. I, You know, especially nowadays, like it's so easy to just have, the, and I think metal bands think that it's, you, you know, it's not cool if they're trying to do something other than just stand in front of the right. kit and, and, you know, jam. Um, but I like when they try to do something with it. That was one of the things I loved about the Resurrectionist video, actually, is that it is just a performance video. Uh, but A, my God, what an energetic performance, and B, all those lovely, weird animated sketches over, like, rotoscoped over the yep. footage. So suddenly, like, during the chorus, when Stitch opens his mouth, he's, he's like, suddenly got these drawn vampire fangs, uh-huh. like, and his mouth goes just a little bit too wide to be natural and all that sort of yep. thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, skin, like, blistering open with insects crawling out of it. That's a, it's very good. <laughs> Yeah, all imagery that, that you know resonates with it me. It fits, for sure. yeah. Um, so again, a, another sort of relentless track, yep. lovely opening riff, and again, uh, and and the the main verse riff actually in this is pretty damn good as well. Yeah, uh, uh, my notes were really like the main riff, great tempo, great industrial feel. Love the the sort of uh, feedback in the background. Um, and then, and then you then get wrote, what almost feels like a dubstep drop in the pre-chorus. I, and I always call that the jump part. I said that the jump part is great. It's relentless. Right. <laughs> I, I, you know, I really liked a uh, great chorus. And I also thought this was a song that, and I don't know if this was one of the singles off the album or not, but definitely was, was, was sort of yes. uh, radio worthy, you know, single, single worthy for sure. Yeah. I think this actually... No, actually, no, it wasn't the first single. The first single was the first track. Uh, the first single mm. was Sleeper. Um, but it, this was a single, definitely, uh, which is why they made a video for it. And yeah, it's, a, again, a real kind of, if you like this, you're probably going to like the rest of the album. Um, yep. It's, I felt that this was also the, the track where having a real drummer, having needles really sort of comes alive uh, because this, this is a track that I think would sound very, very different if they programmed a machine or even used triggers off of a real drummer, having right. the sound of real drums on this track, I think really elevates it and sort of helps bring it alive and give it a bit more energy. Yeah. His drums are standout across the entire album. There, there's a couple songs that I made notes of the double bass technique and stuff mm. like that. Really, just really, really. And in the next song, the, the, the symbols uh, are really, really well done, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, this is also the first track that's got a real breakdown in the bridge. Right. Like they, we've talked about this before. These, this is one of those bands where, even though when they recorded this album, they had two guitarists, there are still no guitar solos. Uh, it is all breakdowns and, you know, uh, sort of bridges with weird off-timed riffs and stuff in the modern style, which I love. Yep. I know some people don't, but I love that. Um, and this is the first track of the album that's really got one of those. I'm a guitar solo guy, but I think that there are genres of metal that it doesn't make sense for or that or that can work without it. And I don't one thing I did not think to myself as I listened through this album was that I, it was missing. You know right, what I mean? Right. Whereas again with the Metallica stuff, um I I think I think what they were trying to do just didn't well, they and were doing partly it for the that wrong was, reasons. I think you that was partly I mean? the length of the songs on St. Anger, wasn't it? Absolutely. You know, as, as we talked about at the time. Um whereas here, as we've said, none of the tracks yeah. are more than Four minutes. In, in some ways, it would have just felt time. tacked on here. They yeah. tried to kind of throw that in there. Well, and it's why when uh, when Aaron left, 
I saw, you know, sort of some discussion around that and they decided to carry on with just Stitch playing guitar uh-huh. because he was like, well, we kind of can, you know, we, we feel yeah. that like, even with just one guitar, we can do that. It's fine. You know, I can do the parts because we don't have solos. Um, but yeah, again, another really good track. Oh, talking about lack of guitar solos, you know, it reminded me, I haven't listened to this album in a long time. There was an album in the nineties by a band called Curb Dog, uh, Irish sort of rock metal band, young white hope sort of thing. Um, and, uh, unfortunately they, they made a great debut album. They made one debut album, um, which was fantastic. I saw them live several times on that tour actually. Um, and uh, and then they hit the sophomore slump and lots of problems with the record label and they just kind of vanished and they're all doing different things now. And I heard talk of a reunion. I'm not sure if that actually happened, but they were one of the first bands I remember, like actual full-on metal bands, clearly with a massive Metallica influence as well, that had no guitar solos on the entire album. And this was back in uh, like 1994. Yep. So not as, you know, near as common as it is now. Um, and I remember that listening to that album the first time and then at the end of it going hang on a second and then i went back and listened and went there are no guitar solos on this album what's happening yeah although i mean at that point in time too you had the whole grunge movement and you had a lot of bands like i and i felt like nirvana did this a lot you know when they would include a guitar solo it was almost making fun of guitar solos you know what i mean right but then you also had alice in chains and Soundgarden, who had full-on unashamed guitar solos in most tracks you know um the, the the sort of the metal end of the grunge sound still yeah, exactly. had those yep. solos, so yeah, it was just it just reminded me. I must dig that album out. I haven't listened to it in ages. <laughs> I know you just made me think of a couple of I wanted to dig out too. Some of the ones like it, I would have on cassette because I would just buy them, you know, almost sound unheard at at my local music store. Like, oh, I'll give this a shot. And right. uh, a lot of that stuff you can't even find nowadays. And so I, I have been on a sort of secret mission to uh, see if there are any digital versions of some of the stuff that I know is not going to be on the racks at any music store <laughs> <you know? laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and bring to the show eventually. So, But yeah, I do, for this second song for Unspoken, I feel like it continues the momentum of the first song. So, so far we're we're two songs in and we are full speed ahead. Yep. Well, and it continues then with track three, Saints and Sinners. Love it. Great up-tempo song. I love the the sort of uh, the feedback in the background. The high the 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 ting of the symbol, especially during the first uh verse, I thought was awesome. Huh, interesting. Well, this was uh, a track apparently Stitch came into the studio with a sort of quasi-black metal riff. Uh, and that's what they built this song around. And that I believe is the riff in the chorus that you're talking about. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it's very, very fast drums, very fast cymbal work, as you say. 
Um, you got bells in there. The church bells crack me up. Yeah. I mean, I love it uh, because it is, you don't put that in by accident, you know? <laughs> Mm. And the song is, I mean, lyrically, the song is clearly a sort of tirade against religion. Drive through right. religion All for jaded minds. All rationale left and pushed aside. Yeah. Uh, drive through religion for jaded minds. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, for sure. Uh, but then putting the church bells in it just, it, it, as I say, it cracks me off. It reminds me of, it's like, um, ah, back in the 90s. I think it was just after, yeah, it was just after the release of October Rust. Uh, Phil Anselmo was interviewing, as you do, um, Peter and Josh from Typo Negative. I think it was on Headbangers Ball or something similar. Okay. Uh, and he, about the new album, and he said something about, like, Be My Druidess, which is, of course, like one of the, I think it's the second song on October Rust, and then laughed. And Pete and Josh were like, fuck you, Phil. And Phil was like, no, 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 I'm laughing because I love it because it is so, so just, you know, over the top and awesome. And that's kind of how I feel the, the church bell is in this. It's like, it makes yes. you laugh, but in a good way. <laughs> and and you just hit on something that I think is going to be a theme that comes up. Like, it's very easy to look at some of the sort of tropes in all different genres of metal and point at them and laugh. You know, when you look at the... Uh, the 80s hair metal stuff like if you don't if you don't have a history of where glam metal came from and everything else it's very easy to look mm. at you know the way the guys in poison dressed and just point at that and laugh it's very easy to look at some of the you know super over the top cheesy lyrics and just look at them and laugh and but all different genres of metal have those sort of things and it's all part of the total package for me so like you said it's something that is kind of over the top but it fits and you you want that to be part of the experience. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. want them to go for it. And I think they go for it in this song. Well, and I think it's being aware that, you know, these things don't happen by accident. And sure, you, you know, you can bet your ass that probably the first time they listened back to it with the church bell, they probably laughed as well. Sure. But, and then it's a decision of like, okay, that's really over the top, but does it fit? You know, shall we keep it? It's Does not it like, add to the song? Yes. Yeah, it's not like these bands are oblivious and do these things by accident. You know, Man of War don't walk out on stage in loincloths by accident. You know, right. <laughs> this is a decision they made. <laughs> and metal fans kind of get pitted against each other sometimes or, or different genres of metal like of like what is cool and what's not cool. Right. And what's that kind of stuff. And and so um, one of the things I like about even the bands that we've talked about so far in the show is we're going to get into a lot of that stuff. And uh and it all has its place in the landscape of metal. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, uh, listeners, uh, any younger listeners out there, trust us, one one of the few good things about getting old is that you simply stop caring about whether or not you something is You absolutely do. Do yes, not care. absolutely. <laughs> because even a band like this, that the Defiled, that we're listening to, like if, if they came along in 1990 and you tried to throw that down in the middle of my Megadeth and Anthrax and stuff like that, I would have I would have been one of those kids who was like, no way, man. Right. This isn't my, but you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, I feel like I'm more open now to all different types of metal than I've ever been because I just want good music now. Yeah. I just want to, and, and if you can show me something that I haven't heard that I'm, I can get some enjoyment out of, like I listen to music 24 seven. So give me the good stuff, you know, yeah. show me stuff that I haven't <laughs> heard before and I'm totally on board. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, so we get three tracks again, relentless, uh, and then, Track four, As I Drown. Fear is the need, but still, making us go down. 
this is to me this was the most immediately catchy track on this album. i love this song first time i listened through to the album this is the track that i was like whoa hang on a second you know and put it on repeat and this is the one that really stuck with me the first time i listened to it yep you're 100 correct that's exactly the same experience that i had the first time i listened to this album i was like oh damn this song's i love the muted opening Yes, you know, that, and then that's it one of my in. favorite tricks. Like yeah, so many oh, bands too, do it, man. but I, I always love it. <laughs> when it's done well, it's like one. And again, it's just one of those things. When it's done, when it's executed well, it just works perfectly. And and it's such a bouncing sort of riff, and there's just such a great energy. Like I just picture the crowd of people just jumping from start to finish on this song, especially when you get to that, you know, that breakdown, man. Uh, okay, that's really interesting that you say that because. Uh, apparently this track, this is a track that they had played live for ages before they recorded it. And it was kind of built around the crowd jumping up and down and something that would be timed just right for the crowd to be able to bounce up and down to it. Huh, interesting. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, in terms of the tempo anyway, and the sort of There's style There's a great, of riff, great energy to the song. It really is. And the, the riff, like the actual main intro riff, the... so good just blows that is one of the best metal riffs i have heard in the last 10 years i absolutely i'm not going to argue with that because this is a song that if i had to pick a track off this one to just throw into a playlist this would be that track right right yeah yeah this and and resurrectionists probably for me would be the two that i would put yeah Um, it's the type of track that makes you want to see them live right oh i would love to see this song done live and and, uh and man that that sort of uh weird bend that they do when they're doing the jump riff part where it's like (laughs) I love that that's just like that's one of those things that gives you the the chills on the back of your neck you're like ooh that's so good yeah yeah, absolutely. I I made a note about that as well. I love that that bending note. And then the the second part of the bridge, which is just the sort of the marching riff while the keyboards play over the top. I love that because that kind of shows that they don't have to do everything at a million miles an hour. Right. You know, and they can still be really really heavy because that's yep. relatively slow without being sort of half speed like a breakdown. It's just a standard, you know, standard headbanging tempo, but yep. it is still really really heavy. Absolutely. F- just fantastic song. M- might be my favorite song on the album. I, also, some fantastic lyrics uh, in this. Um, yeah, walking against the wind-driven rain, tangled in a blanket of your lies, you're yeah. fucking killing me. Well, and just the chorus. The the um, the line, it's the same old situation, pouring water as I drown. Just, yep. that's I love that. And that's, yep. that's also, I think, a good example of uh, brevity and non- specificity in lyrics mm-hmm. that I was talking about in the Queensryche. With the Queensryche stuff. Episode, yep. yeah. I kind of feel like if, if Queensryche had written the same thing, that line would have been twice as long. <laughs> right. Uh, and But I love how it's... Well, okay, here's the thing. This is how vague this song is. Uh, the first, for many times, actually, when I heard this song, I assumed, 
and I'm going to guess that you did as well, that it was about like a former lover or, you know, some kind of angsty... That is the first impression I think it right. gives for sure. Turns out it's apparently about some uh, arsehole uh, person at a record company who strung, uh, you know what? I, strung the band along for eight, for ages. <laughs> yep, you've been dragging this out now for way too long. It's time to cage or set me free. So yeah. there's certainly... Um, it can yeah, be taken either that way. Yeah, that. Yeah. Yep. Um, for sure. But yeah, when I found that out, I was like, oh... Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I did assume it was a love song. <laughs> I love yeah. how it ends on the same riff as it opens as well. Yes. It doesn't end on the chorus. It ends on that same bounce and riff just to really reinforce getting it in people's heads. Yep. So we're four for four so far. And that is the longest track on the album. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, 441. You're absolutely right. It Which is. is nuts because it does not feel like a long track at all, does it? It does not overstay its welcome at all. Yeah. It's, it's, Which none of none of them do, frankly, in my opinion, on this album, because they're all they're all under that five minute mark. Yeah. So you know, it, and that's the beauty of that is that you can make a few missteps, but if you're not beating you know people over the head with it, then they can just move on to the next right. tune. Yeah. So, but man, what a strong start! I mean, we're, we're almost through side one, and it's been all killer and no filler so yeah, far. Absolutely. And then after the four you know, pretty relentless tracks, we do then slow down and we get track five, Porcelain. I am not a fan of. Really? Okay, interesting. Yep. They took their foot off the gas pedal for me there, and I was like, oh. <laughs> this not was... that it's a bad song, but momentum for me. Um, right. The first songs just build this just juggernaut of momentum. and uh, See, I, and, yeah. qu- I quite like that it's a break from that sort of full speed ahead nature of the rest of the album. It's like it's just a short pause for you to get your breath back. Yeah, and... Uh, but- so yeah, certainly. So talk about what you like about this song. Well, uh, I, I mean, it's not my favorite song on the album by any means. Sure. Um, but I like that it is different to what we've heard before. The electronics come to the fore. Uh, this song was apparently written around the electronics rather than being written around guitar riffs, which Definitely. they don't normally do. Um, and you can tell that you know, as a result, they came out with a very different track. Um, I love the. Uh, what really sells it for me is the stop-start rhythm in the chorus riff because of all the tracks we've heard so far, it's the one where that's the most unexpected uh-huh. uh, and it's kind of offbeat and you've got the longer sounds of the vocals, like the vocals have all got long vowel sounds, you know, that he's sort of this, again, the soaring vocals. Yep. But then underneath, you've got this really oddly rhythmic guitar riff, which just kind of, 
just throws you off enough. And I, I like that because it would have been very easy to not have that and to have the guitars just be smooth underneath the smooth vocals and then everything would have been smooth. And, you know, I like that it's still got a jagged edge to it. Right. Yeah, I I, I think for me, this other than the fact that it's obviously, you know, much slower than what we've experienced so far in the album, I... I think they're not at their best when they let the electronics take the forefront. And so I was kind of glad that right. they don't do that more often because that that to me to be honest this is the song where they sound to me more generic where I don't I don't think they sound as um stand out from the rest of the crowd as they do on their other tracks. So this this one was a little bit too oh, okay. formulaic for me Interesting. in terms of um how they approached it. But I saw but, quite a lot of reviewers say that this track sounds like a Marilyn Manson ripoff. Um, I don't really I, I, see that myself, but then I'm not much of a Manson fan. I was so. just going to say I'm not as I'm not enough of a Manson fan to know if that's a, a a valid sort of critique. But I think it goes to what I just said: of they, it, this is an easier song to point at and say this sounds like someone else, right? Than it is to um, say like this is the only band that this sounds like, right? Doesn't doesn't sound as individual as the rest. Yeah, and I for mean, for bands that fit into because the other thing too is like, um. To me, uh, this type of music is the type of music where the, striking the right balance is m- even more important than it is for like traditional thrash or for riff-based hair metal or something like that. Because with all of those types of music, it's very easy to latch onto one thing and that will pull you through the song. With this type of music, like if you don't strike that right balance, because a lot of the chugging and a lot of the main riffs are there, there are variations in beat of a very right uh, similar sounding. It's more about you know, rhythm than melody. No, exactly. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to say. So it's more about rhythm than melody. And so you're not being carried through necessarily by one particular element. It really requires all of those things to work well together in order to have a great song. And so whenever that balance is thrown off to me, it sort of um it sort of derails, you know, what they're trying to do because they need all of those pieces working in perfect harmony in order to really deliver because it's the way it's designed is not for one thing to stand out above the others whereas in 80s metal it was designed for the guitars to take the lead or it was designed for a singer like jeff tate to take the lead so it was easier to identify with one thing and that could still carry the song with i think in in some ways for bands that play this genre of music it is harder because they have to really function fully as a unit and have a great balance to every song to have the song itself be a standout song. I would I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. Although a lot of the uh a lot of their contemporaries, a lot of the other bands in this sort of scene um who are more melodic and more sort of maybe maybe more technical in their approach. Uh-huh. Uh as a result, actually I think a lot of them come out blander because they Oh, uh, I agree. because they I mean, kind of overdo that. it. Like there's a band yep. called Silosis. Um mm-hmm. Who I like, they're a good band, and I know that uh, I know that the guys in the Defiled are fans of them. Actually, I think they're all you know friends. They're all about the same age. They did play the same gigs. You know how it is, um, and they're a good band. But they are basically centered around the lead guy and his guitar work because he uh-huh. is an incredible guitarist, like just amazingly technical virtuoso guitarist. Um, and it kind of feels like sometimes they forget to write a song because they're yes. too busy, like you know, just showing off his guitar skills. And that's I, when what, you're saying that stuff, I, I think of Lacuna Coil a lot, you know what I mean? Which really? is a band that I really enjoy, but I feel like they fall into a formulaic, uh, they, 
they um because they have a very talented singer they can easily fall oh, you think the they formula. rely too much on they Christine rely Scavia. too much on the formula you know mm-hmm. and so every one of their albums to me has like three or four tracks that you could consider standout but then there's a lot of uh, filler on a lot of their stuff too um with the exception of a couple of albums but i do i feel like again not that they're playing the exact type of music that these guys are playing but i just i feel like it's harder when you're not doing sort of the when the riff isn't the main driving force or a particular element is the main driving force it's it's just harder mm. to stand out you really have to have that perfect balance of all of these things working extremely well because there's a lot of bands that have a similar sound to one another and i think of like the mayhem festival that i just went to on that second stage sister sin is wildly different because they're almost more of a hard rock slash heavy metal act but all of the other bands that were on that second stage there was about five bands that I sat there and watched, and I could not tell you the difference between the five of them. Oh, wow. Um, there were clearly fans of each one of those bands there, and I'm sure if I listened to their albums and dug into them, but just at first blush, it's just this uh, very similar sound that I think um, just makes it harder for bands to stand out. So mm. you really have to do something interesting, um, and you really have to have that good balance. No, I agree. I agree. And that's where, uh, you know, as I'm always banging on about, I think songwriting comes and dynamics comes to the fore rather than because, you know, there are thousands of guitarists that can play at a million miles an hour. and uh-huh. there, there are thousands of singers who can, you know, soar and, you know, sing really high vibrato notes and stuff. But that's it's nothing without a good song to to, you know, put behind it. Sure. Also, in case you didn't know, uh, that song apparently is about sex. Oh, yeah, in case in case that eluded you as you listened to it. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case it wasn't kind of obvious from the lyrics. Uh apparently, yes, yeah, so the AVD took great delight in uh, an interview I saw in like saying, and it's about sex and people who are good at sex. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. That's fine. funny. <laughs> uh I have to be young again. Um I know, right? And then okay, so and then this track with no gap uh goes straight into new approach. I really liked. Uh, my notes were more attacking, great chorus, great balance. Uh, this is what the band should be. Right. Well, it is right back into the noise and speed after the sort of, you know, the the more quiet of porcelain. But again, I, I think that's helps it work, actually, because, you know, it gives you a bit of contrast within the album. Sure. Like, I, again, I can't fault them for not doing, you know, not sticking to that approach the entire album just uh but i love that we're back into it now and and there's just great chorus i mean this is the hardship of being this is the state of us all i mean just great great chorus. this is another one where i feel like the 
you know, the chorus is like jumping off the end of that ramp. I just yeah. think they build into it perfect. Yeah. Um, I've actually seen Although that. they do that sort of, they do that sort of stilted, um, you know, there's a hard stop to dern, dern, and then they kick into the chorus. So it's yes. not, it, it's, it's a nice, it, it, it's a nice effect there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, and the breakdown in the bridge again is another, Oh, another really bended note one. that yeah. I just like, I think that works very well when they use it on this album. Yeah. It's, it is another, the chorus in this one is amazing. Um, I, I saw some reviewers saying that they thought the clean vocals on this track were weak. And I'm like, I don't know what record you're listening to, mate. Nope. <laughs> it's not the same one I'm listening Again, to. Again, this is uh, my quote was, this is what this band should be. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like this is one of those songs where it's all working. And, and this wasn't a single. I was always surprised that this wasn't a single because- Oh, I thought it certainly could have been because yeah. it felt like it, it just, I mean, it's three minutes and nine seconds. It's perfect radio material. You know well, what I mean? And it felt stylistically and lyrically, it almost feels uh, like it could be taken a bit like Call to Arms. Like Call to Arms is a, off the last album is a real kind of we're here and we're going to take over kind of song. Yes. You know, it's a, and this actually is a isn't. stand up and take notice song. Right. And the, the lyrics in this actually aren't about that, but they feel like they could be. You yes, know? totally. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, um, and the song itself is so energetic and has such a great chorus. Yeah, I was amazed that they never released it as a single. Apparently it was written really quickly. This is, you know, I'm a big fan of getting in there, doing it quickly and then getting out again. Uh, on, yep. a lot, on a lot of things. And this apparently is one of the, you know, was a track written really fast in the AVD's lounge uh, before yep. they headed out to Florida to record the album. <laughs> Which is, I think, a good uh, example of how you don't have to overthink things. Exactly, exactly. Find a riff and nail it to the floor, as they used Absolutely. to say in Kerrang. <laughs> yep, you've got three minutes, lock it down. Yep. Um, uh, and then on to Fragments of Hope. Which I really, lo- I love the air horns in the background. Um, oh, right, The yeah. sort of air horn effect of, and then uh, I think that the chugging attack is great. This this um, feels like it's a dual guitar attack on this oh, song. Oh, right, okay. You know what I mean? It just feels like, it just feels really heavy. The double bass drums are fantastic on this song. Um Again, I felt like great balance between all of that stuff. The the background, the sort of void, this sort of uh, it gave me like an HP Lovecraft like uh, the the notes, the electronica in the background, just mm. this very like weird, um, almost like interdimensional sort of <laughs> disturbing, like just just this. It, it's when, just really when the cool. Stars yeah. align. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like just like, like almost like, but that wrong feeling, you know, of like, ooh, this is. You know, it it just uh, it had a lot of a lot of elements that I thought worked really well together. Ah, huh. okay, that's really interesting because to me this is the weakest track on the album. 
Oh, interesting. <laughs> I I mean, it's still, once again, you know, we're into that territory of it's still a good track. Uh, you know, it's not that it's a bad track, but compared to the rest of the album, for me, this is the weakest one. Um, if I don't know if you noticed, but all of the last three tracks, basically from Porcelain, Porcelain runs straight into New Approach, and then New Approach runs straight into Fragments of Hope. Yeah. There's no, you know, no gap or anything. I actually think that was a bit of a mistake because... Uh, I mean, New Approach stands out from Porcelain just by virtue of being a really fast, heavy track after a relatively slow, quieter track. But Uh then running straight into this as well, I don't feel like this is different enough from New Approach to, unless you know, to realize that you're listening to a new track. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, No, I totally get what you're saying. It feels like we've hit that, the, you know, once again, the famous two thirds of the way through the album sag with this track. it's Doesn't, so funny because I think it's the next three uh, really? ones that sag. Yeah. So, huh, no, but I, I do feel this like one. this album suffers from uh, basically just side two is just not as strong as side one. If we're if we're talking about it in in sort of record in overall terms, no, uh, I, I yeah, would agree. I would agree. Record form. Yeah. Um, um, okay. Well, so the next track is Infected. Which my biggest note is a little too Lincoln Park. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's really funny because apparently uh, this I, I love this track. I love it because it's got loads of energy. It's a really fast. You know what I don't like tempo. is that right when they're singing the chorus, it's like that bam, 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 bam. I I just that that um, keyboard. Uh, tune just is so generic to me like it it just immediately made me think of ah. like lincoln park and 50 other bands that have that sort of <laughs> in the background during their chorus but yeah so and it, it to me it felt like a a song made for the radio well it's funny that you you say all that and that you mentioned lincoln park because apparently this was originally they were originally going to do this as a bonus track only because okay. uh stitch came in with this riff uh as a deliberately sort of for them anyway, relatively light-hearted, almost punk pop kind of thing. Uh-huh. But then they built a song around it and it grew on them and, you know, and they decided to put it on the album. But that's, so in light of what, you know, your takeaway from it, I find that really interesting. And it cracks me up that he describes it as like, it, you know, it was well-tuned up and everything. It was just kind of silly and, and punk pop. And I'm like, just because it's not in drop A or whatever, that's right. apparently regarded as tuned up. But it's not like they're playing a fucking banjo or something. <laughs> right, exactly, and the, but it, but it also speaks to how they view some of probably their contemporaries around right. you know the whole pop idea of like that's not what we are, but this maybe is a song where we sort of dipped our toe in it and um, you know had a little fun with it. Although I do like how this song, I feel like the song gets heavier towards the end of the song, 
and and ends on a strong note. Yeah. So I, well, I, so and part I do of that, feel like I think is down to Needle's drumming, and I I made a note that I love totally Needle's agree. drumming on this one because it's not like the fastest drumming on the album. It's probably not even the loudest, but the energy in it is awesome, and there is great cymbal work because yes, pretty much every bar he's hitting some kind of metal. On this yeah, track. absolutely. <laughs> yep, uh, totally. I and and I would say. You could say that probably out of the eleven songs, probably nine of the eleven songs, his drum work is standout. On yeah, this like he he just really. In fact, it, the next song, the morning after, I feel like his drums carry that song. The the sort of rolling double bass, you know, uh, mm-hmm. parts of the song. I feel like he he's just killing it. Oh wow! Well, let's okay. Let's talk about because I say I love the infected. Oh, one thing I uh, do have to mention about infected before we move on is that they did make a video for this. I'm not sure if it was ever technically a single, but they did make a video for it, uh, and it was the video where uh, Aaron Curse officially left. They made a video out of Lego. The whole video is the band and their set and like playing as Lego people. That is awesome. Animated in 3D, uh, and as they're playing, some weird dimensional wormhole opens up and sucks the Aaron Curse Lego figure into the void. <laughs> that is too funny. I'm going to have to watch that because my I'll sh- I'll show that one to my son. He'll get a kick out of that. It's great because it's I I love the I mean as I say I don't know that much about them. It may seem like I do, but I've just seen, you know, a few interviews and stuff sure. and, um but I really don't and I but I I never got any I never read anything that said that the split was uh you know was nasty or that it wasn't sure you know that him leaving wasn't amicable in some way um and so i love that they made a video to go like give him a (laughs) send-off that's awesome and then it's even better it's in lego (laughs) yeah that's even better no i can't wait to see it um so yeah so then we go on to the morning after Yep, I thought this song had a really strong intro, and I thought the drums really uh, were just fantastic on this yeah. song. Again, Needle's drumming is awesome. I think this is a really, really strong song musically. Like the breakdown riff is almost kind of grungish. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you can feel the grunge influence coming through, but it's got a lovely headbanging rhythm. The whole song has a really uh sort of dramatic, and the chord changes are filled with tension. Like musically, it's great. But I, I mean, I, I do like it again, but the lyrics, it's it's a hangover song. It's basically like we've had a great party and now we've all got hangovers song. Right. And I, I feel it's a shame that this really great music <laughs> is, I don't want to say wasted, that's harsh, but you know, it, it's just a shame that there isn't a more dramatic lyric to go with this really dramatic music. I me. agree in that the rest of their lyrics 
are more in depth. If this was a band that this was the type of stuff that they wrote about, oh, sure, if I this would was be Motley totally Crue, yeah. exactly. Thank you. <laughs> if this was Motley Crue, I'd be like, oh yeah, no, this makes perfect sense to me. But you're right. I think with the with their approach to lyrics on the rest of the songs, you kind of are by song nine you've been conditioned to expect something a little bit deeper right exactly i yeah. mean but then again you know we're not in our 20s anymore so maybe maybe it's maybe we're just being crotchety i, I have to know. remind myself of that all the like <laughs> i don't have to remind myself of that i mean my creaking knees when i get out of bed in the morning will remind me of that but but yes like i a lot of times i have to remind myself that like i'm no longer the intended audience for right a lot of this stuff so if i just because it's not resonating with me doesn't mean that it's not because when i look back at every single band that i grew up loving all it is is sex drugs rock and roll that's that's everything you know (laughs) on the on the hair metal side and then on the thrash side it's we hate the government we hate authority um we hate everything we hate everything and so like yes all of that stuff when i was you know in my teens and, and 20s was made perfect sense and captured exactly the way I felt about everything. Yeah. Well, but and now, not I've so said much. before, Motorhead are one of my all-time favorite bands. And, you know, 90% of Motorhead songs, if they're not about war, they're about sex and drugs and rock and roll. Yep. So, and, and I'm al- an ACDC and alcohol, fan, so you know, same deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I could, you know, I can't, I've got no grounds to complain on that sense. Sure. I just, but you're right, because this, maybe if this was earlier in the album, yep. uh, it wouldn't feel so out of place, but, you know, but musically, as I say, I think musically, it's one of the strongest tracks on the album. Great music. Sure. And then it leads into five minutes. All my life I've known Nothing else but you to be my own You are my home And it's This would be the song I would throw away off this album if I had one. Really? If I had one ticket to say, get this out of here. Only wow. because, uh, again, on its own, and this reminds me of the ballad on the Anthrax album. Um, not a bad song as a standalone song. For me, I just don't think it even has a place on this on this album. Oh, but wow. that's, again, my personal opinion. It's just like, oh, sure, we're, sure. We're, we're building towards the end of this record, and... To me, this is like, not only does it slow the momentum down, it basically puts the car in park and they get out and walk away. So it's kind of like, like because I, I felt like with the end of The Infected, even though it was a very radio-friendly song, like that was heavy. And then the morning after, I, it felt like we were building back up to a big finish. And uh, so maybe it's the placement of this song right now. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe this song would have fit somewhere else. I don't know where I would have put it, but... Um, as the penultimate song on the record, I 
sort of struggled with where it was. Well, on their previous album, Grave Times, that actually ended with a slower song, um, but which called Final Sleep. And that track and this track were both written by the AVD, um, oh, okay. like entirely written by him uh, as the sort of slower, more, yeah, slight, slightly electronic tracks. Um, so maybe it should have gone at the end, although that would have denied us the actual ending track, which, you know, I think would have been a mistake. Um, yep, I agree. It's re- this, again, has been a single, or if not a single, they've at least made a video for it. Um, I sent you a link to the video, actually, before recording. I don't know if you watched it. I don't know if uh, I watched it or not. Uh, I don't think I did. It's a re-recorded version, um, and actually I think is stronger than the version on the album. Um, it was when they went off to do the gig on the iceberg, they had, okay. they had a day spare basically. So they filmed performance parts for a re-recorded version of this. Oh, I like that idea. Um, and, uh, so they're, they're in this lovely, you know, like, I don't know where it was, Finland or something, you know, uh, bleak landscape performing. Um, but they also intercut it with this song is, uh, I mean, as you can almost certainly tell just by listening to the lyrics, it's about, you know, loss and death and, uh, you know, the loss of loved ones and uh for the rest of the video they invited fans to come down to on some warehouse in london um and pay tribute to loved ones that they'd lost oh that's nice in the video um it's uh it's it's one of those things where it's just on the edge of being a little bit cheesy but then when you watch it and the sincerity of the people taking part is yep. so obvious and clear that actually you kind of, you're like, okay, fine. You know, you, you can't. And keep in mind, I mean, we just talked about in the interview at the top of the show where they're talking about this relationship that they have with right. their fans. And I yeah. know a lot of bands say that, but but clearly this is. These um, guys clearly do, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, that to me makes sense. And that can be the type of thing that takes a song that you might not otherwise really love just like seeing a performance live. Like there, there certainly are times where the video for a song can make you give a song a second look. Like, and, huh. And that's exactly what I was going to say was that this, in a way, I feel vindicates your sort of live version theory and, you know, what you were talking about with uh, Slayer because it is, the re-recorded version uses the whole band. It has drums and guitars, and uh-huh. you know, it, whereas the album version is all electronics uh, yep. and piano. And I do prefer the full band version. Not that I dislike this version, but having now heard the other version, I wish that was the one on the album. And if it sure. were, I think maybe you wouldn't have quite the adverse reaction to it that you have, if you know what I mean. Because it is yep. slower, but it's still, you know, it, it retains a bit of that heaviness. Yeah. 
Um, but I do think that it is a fucking great song. That's the other thing. Like, bear in mind, firstly, again, talking about taste and restraint, like this song is, you know, it's a, it basically was written by the AVD. It's all based around electronics and piano and stuff. And there is a, a guitar riff, uh, sort of acoustic guitar piece in there, but that's uh-huh. very much played down. Sure. But even then, the electronics still don't kind of overwhelm everything. It's not like he's doing Rick Wakeman style you know, million miles an hour keyboard solos. It's all nice and simple and sort of understated, um, even though, you know, it's it's his track. Um, but also, it's just a fucking great song. Like, I could, and this may not sound like an endorsement, but believe me, it is. I could see Adele singing this song. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Like, I really could imagine, like, a version of, like, Adele on stage with an orchestra behind her singing this song, and it would still sound just as good and make just as much sense. And I think that's a really... That's a real testament to the strength of the songwriting in this one. I, I think it's a testament to the fact that that this song also maybe doesn't necessarily fit in with the rest of the songs on this album. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, so, I mean, that's the flip uh, again, side, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that was true of the Anthrax song as well, which I think, you know, not, not that we want John Bush singing a lot of ballads, but, um, but it was a very, it was a great song. Yeah. I also do, some of the lyrics in this are great, and I particularly love the line, I hold this pain inside my chest. Yep. That, what a fantastic image. What, an, what a beautiful, beautiful, yeah, painful, tragic, but beautiful image. Um, right. Yeah, love that. And then to the last track. The which closer. Is no Place Like Home. <laughs> And again, I think actually, I know, you know, you're not so keen on the previous track, but I think it benefits from coming out of a slower, quieter track because I it too, is a really on loud a, track. It is, but on its own, it's not as aggressive as some of the other songs on the album. So I think coming off of this uh, slow song before it makes it feel heavier and makes it feel bigger, which is good because I think when you look at songs like... Um, you know, fragments of hope, new approach, or or a couple of the sleeper or unspoken or something like that. It's not as fierce as those songs, but having it balanced by coming off of a slower song, it feels that way. And I do think it's a good closer. I think it it's got some really uh, interesting parts to it. I like the sort of muted opening thing that they do, um, which is similar to what song started. That it was song four, right? As I drown. Yeah, yeah. That had sort of that effect to it too. So so I did like that. I think it I think it works well as a closer. That's really interesting because I, I, my notes are pretty much exactly the same, that it feels like a track that is almost saved by its placement because yep. that if it had been earlier in the album, it might have 
kind of merge too easily into some of the others. But by putting it here, it really stands on its own. And it is, yeah, a good closer with a heavy riff, a big chorus, almost, yep. al- sounds almost like an anthem. Um, and then yeah. the, the breakdown with the really big, low bent notes and then the, the descending synth line. And, yep. and it just keeps repeating and repeating. It feels almost like apocalyptic. Yeah, I wrote electronic effects are cool as the song riffs to an end. I liked the way that it closed. It almost brings you full circle to the beginning of the album, you know? Right, right. It reminds me, actually, uh, and again, not sort of, obviously, it sounds very different, but it reminds me of, uh, there's a track on My Dying Bride's album. Which which album? Oh, I can't even remember now, but it's a track called A Doomed Lover, final track on the album. And it's a similar thing where the final coda, like there's three and a half minutes or so on that track, it would just repeat over and over, but adding textures and little bits. And it's at just the right speed to keep your head banging without wearing you out <laughs> for those right. three and a half minutes. And yep. you just kind of want it to never end. There's something about the structure of it and the, the music of it is circular and you just kind of want it to keep on going. And I feel like this, as I say, it sounds very different, but I feel like this coder is much the same. You could, you know, you just feel like you want it to carry on and carry on. And I, I know because I saw an interview where they mentioned it that that's actually why this track fades out. Most of the tracks, other tracks on the album, come to a hard stop. A hard this stop. This one, yep. this one fades out because they felt that that closing riff was just so good. They just wanted to keep it going, keep it going. And we've talked about this before, but endings are hard, and so mm. ending uh, the album in a place where it makes you want to go back to the beginning and start listening again, I think. It, when that's, a band does that yeah. well, that's exactly the, every band is trying to do that. Yeah. Um, when a band does that well, and I think this track works well for that, then it it's uh, you know it's such an important spot on the album. Yeah, and I yeah, think it, a lot of times doesn't get the same um, level of discussion or attention, obviously, as the opener. But the closer is the one that makes you want to come back and listen to the right. album again. And so you could make the argument that in some ways it is the most important track on the album because. It could be the difference between somebody giving it one listen or a hundred listens. Right. Well, and I like it when you can tell that a band has clearly thought about that placement. Yes. Uh, you know, and has actually thought, hang on, what are we going to have as the last track? It's got to be something that feels right as the yep. final track on the album. And when you look at the last three songs, like as I mentioned, I didn't like, you know, five minutes coming after the morning after, but when you look at those last three songs as a whole, then the placement makes much more sense right. because they're they're taking it down a level to bring you back up and end you on a solid note, you know, for the album. So uh, in that sense, that those last few songs flow, those three flow well together. Right. If they'd ended on five minutes, you actually could imagine a lot of people just hitting stop before that. Track. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, absolutely. Rather, because I mean, it would have been an appropriate closing track, and a, you know, end with a ballad, fine, okay. But then when it ends you wouldn't necessarily have the urge to yeah go back to the start and listen Correct. all over again. Yep. Whereas this track definitely does that. So so overall I I mean obviously, you know, it's no obviously I love this album. That's that's clear. But I am I'm not blind to its flaws. Uh and the main thing about this album that encourages me that I like is that it is better than the previous album. Uh and I really just want to see what they do next, especially sure. now that now that they seem to have a stable lineup. They are officially a one guitar band. And let's be honest, there aren't many of those left in metal these days. Um, right. And that they now have a proper recording budget because after, although this album was crowdfunded, before it was released, they signed to Nuclear Blast. Um, 
uh, for distribution and stuff. And now I believe that Nuclear Blast have actually, you know, they will fund the next record. Um, so I'm really excited to see what they do for the next record because I kind of, I feel like if they get it right, if they get the next album right, they could have a really big breakthrough. They've just toured the States supporting, oh God, who was it? Was it Azalea Dying or, no, I can't remember now, but they just did a, you know, a short tour of the States supporting an American band. Um, and apparently it went really well. And I kind of feel like they could have, you know, they could reach that sort of level um, if they just get the next record right. And I would be really yep. happy for them if they did, because I think this is a band that so many more people should know about and should enjoy. I agree. I feel like this is a band that if you give this album a few listens, you'll see that they they have it. You know what I mean? They have yes. the chops to make this work. They're not... Um, they're not a flash in the pan. And so you you want them to take that next step while keeping all of the things that they've built so far. Yeah. Because a lot of bands fumble that. You know what I mean? Like a lot of bands when when they're poised to break out, they they fumble that transition and then it doesn't, you know, they either piss off their fans that got them to that point or they, you know, they never really break out the way that they're supposed to because they sort of fumble that transition. But I think you're right. If they get the next album right and build on what they've established you know so far they could be huge yeah i agree i agree um and yeah as i say i really hope they do i like i've i i've never been one of those people who's like oh no i don't want this to be popular because it's it's my thing um you know i've never been uh angered at things going mainstream or whatever partly because i lived through the near death of goth thank you very much and i don't want to see that again i was never right. more happy than when marilyn manson turned millions of young kids onto goth music yes you know because even if you don't care, even if you don't like him and that's the thing that drives me crazy and we talk about how it's parallels with comics as well too but yeah. <laughs> it's all it's all sort of fandoms it's gaming it's all of that kind of stuff it's like um whatever keeps it alive and yeah. and even if it goes through a period of time where it's not exactly what you want it to be the fact that it's still around um is is the most important thing yeah, and i absolutely. think again that but that comes with age you know because when you're younger everything if it's not if it's not the way you want it then it's garbage you know? I, yeah, I guess, I guess. Um, so yeah, as I say, I'm really excited to see what these guys do next. And uh, I would encourage all of our listeners to go out and uh, find this album because especially if you are like us, you know, uh, a little longer in the tooth and yep. you're not sort of <laughs> up on the, uh, you know, the modern underground and stuff, this is a band that I think you can really get into. And I, I the other thing I have to say too is if you are like me who... Uh, grew up on hair metal and grew up on on um you know where where clean vocals is what you're used to um you, there's a knee-jerk reaction to anything that that is screamy or growly or um or anything like that there's this sort of almost immediate knee-jerk averse reaction of nope that's not my thing i don't like that and you have to push through that because yeah. if you spend more time with this album you will you'll find that there's so much good stuff there to dig into. But I do feel, I was just talking about this with Matt, who I do the secret identity podcast with. And, and he is that way because he's even older than me. And he grew up with Asia and he grew up with, you know, so he's, he's very, you know, yes. And sticks yeah, yeah, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. As soon as it's not clean vocals, he's out. And that's really where he just exits the the whole situation. Yeah. And so um, I feel like there's a lot of metal fans. My buddy John will probably tell you that he feels sort of the same way, where that's sort of an immediate turnoff for him. But you got to push through that because don't let one element of a particular type of music 
either turn you on or off to it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like experience the whole thing and then make a, make an opinion about that. I totally agree. All right. What are we going to talk about next week, Brian? Lay Man, this was a tough, tough decision. Um, because I wanted to, at first I was like, well, we'll go back to the old stuff. But then I thought, you know what? It's not going to hurt us to do two sort of newer ones. And this one is going to be very different from the, the type of music that we just talked about. We're going to go to Sweden and we're going to visit Sister Sin. We're oh, are they Swedish? I didn't realize. Yes, they are. And uh, we are going to listen to their 2012 album, Now and Forever. Now, they just released one in 2014 called Black Lotus. And that's the... They're actually touring now with the Mayhem Festival. I just recently saw them, and uh, it was my first time seeing them, and I am a huge fan. This one, I think, uh, I'll be interested to see how people react to it, because for me, um, there are... The 80s sort of metal is much bigger outside of the United States now than it is inside of the United States, and that pains me, because that is my favorite era of metal. And so I have found over the years that I am going to other countries now to find... Um, people carrying on the type of music that I grew up with. And I think Sister Sin is one of those bands that, at first blush, they sound like what hair metal could have become if uh, you know, if it never crashed and burned at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the, the early 90s. Um, but there's, this is another band that has a lot more going on if you, if you dig into it. So Now and Forever may not be their best album, but I think it's a good representation of what has come before and what they're setting up sort of to be. And I love them. I love this band. That was the same reason that I chose Icon from Paradise Lost. It's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's one of my favorite albums of theirs, but it was not their best, uh, clearly. But it is, yeah, representative, exactly. Yep. And so, uh, man, Sweden, uh, if if you just look for a list of Swedish metal bands, it's like 10 pages long. There is so much oh, yeah. amazing yeah, yeah. music coming out of Sweden of all different genres of metal. It's amazing. Yep. Um, and Sister Sin, I think, is not like most of them because they are sort of carrying on the banner of what what came before in the 80s, whereas you, a, a lot of the other bands are much darker and much more um, you know, doom metal and death metal and thrash and stuff like well, that. Well, and but, I, I was going to say, like, you know, one of my favorite bands from the 90s, Entombed, are Swedish, of course. Exactly. That, that whole, in fact, my, uh, the distortion pedal that i regularly use the boss yep. hm2 basically was known as the swedish metal pedal because it's the one that all the all the uh, swedish metal bands used <laughs> yeah there you go and and it's funny when you get that tone that you really like and that that sound that you really like so but i'm interested to hear what you think and and hopefully there are people who have not listened to sister sin that loved 80s metal that will now discover them. And so we'll talk about them more next week, but it's now and forever. It came out in 2012. It's on victory records and it's on pretty much all of the major sites. You can, uh, you can get a copy of it. Cool. Okay. I will, uh, I will hunt that down and uh, yeah, we will talk about it. Interesting. Cause I, I've literally not heard a thing by this band. I know I've heard you mention them a few times and you've said that they're one of your favorite new bands, but I have literally not heard a single thing by them. So I think yeah. you'll understand why as soon as you start listening <laughs> to them, uh, and and it will go one of two ways for you. So, uh, so yeah, but but definitely, uh, you won't ha- you will not have a problem figuring out why they're one of my favorite bands. Okay, awesome. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, so I'll see you next week then. See you then.
You've been listening to Anthony Johnston and Brian Latendry thrash it out. If this is your kind of thing, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes, and support us at patreon.com slash thrash it out. With your help, we can stay completely independent and keep thrashing. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com. Thank you, and good night.